This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy. Now I'm what advertising people call aspirational especially when it comes to technology. You see, smart watches, dumb fitness bands, virtual goggles and shirts that can read your posture and tell you to sit straight. I love them all! And apparently I'm not alone. Now that computer uh, and tech companies have crammed every desk with a PC, every backpack with a laptop and every hand with a phone, where do they go next? Well, the answer is you! Or more precisely, on you, the wearable market. And they promise all sorts of amazing tricks, like reading your vital signs, your emotions, your sweat, you name it. Helping us negotiate our way through this plethora of devices and hype is Dr. Shea. He's a psychiatry trainee who, like me, has a fascination with gadgets he can tinker with. Now, this is a segment no early adopter can afford to miss. EpiPen is our resident epidemiologist. I love saying that word, epidemiologist. And she worked for many years in the hepatology, aka liver unit, in a large metropolitan hospital, a hospital with a helipad next to a park, starting with a letter D. In fact, that's where I met Epi all those years ago when hepatitis C was a newly discovered virus. Since then, a lot has changed about the treatment for hep C, especially this week with federal government changes to the listing of the treatments on the PBS. EpiPen will be telling us why these changes are so important and a little too about the clinical side of things hepatitis C-wise. Dr. Moto, he's one cool dude, he really is. A freshly minted shrink, he cuts the kind of figure the producers of Gray's Gray's Anatomy would just love to have on their show. Even better, he rides a BMW. How big is the engine on your BMW? Oh, it's a minuscule 1,200 cc's. <laughs> See, I've got 1,000 here. 1,200 cc's! Goodness gracious. Now, I often ask myself, what occupies the mind of a young psychiatrist nowadays? Is it the jaw-dropping new research into genetics and mental illness? Is it the novel insights into mirror neurons from functional MRI scans? Or maybe it's the power of words to change minds. Well, Moto threw me a, threw me a curveball this morning when he told me he wanted to talk about the latest research into childhood allergies. Hmm, I wonder what kind of angle he'll be taking. How good is that lineup? We really should register for continuing education points. So, um, why don't you stay with us for the next hour on Radiotherapy? Good morning, EpiPen. Good morning. Yeah, well, that's, you've just woken up. <laughs> that's no, right, I, we, we, we had a little chew on how to use the microphones this morning, and I thought I'd just have an, even a different voice. Yeah, well, you're looking uh, wide awake. Did you write in again? Yeah, you? yeah, you've got to so write. Active, so active. Lycra, I've told you this before. I know. And uh, good morning to our new uh, panellist guest, uh, Dr. Shea. Nice good. to have you in. Good morning, guys. Nice to be here. Uh, Dr. Moto. Good morning, Dr. Mel. Did you ride in your, your BMW 1200 this morning? No, I um, relied on my own 0.05 horsepower in my legs this morning. 0.05 horsepower? Yes, I wouldn't have the audacity to say that I generate even close to one <laughs> horsepower. Horses are very powerful creatures. Uh, yes, I have. <laughs> yes, much stronger than, uh, than my two legs. Now, there's been a lot in the news lately about uh, pill testing at uh, music festivals, oh, and we did discuss this. We touched on this a couple of weeks ago with uh, EpiPen, and there's been a, a bit more in the well, actually, a lot more news. What do you, uh, august health professionals, think of the issue? Are we for it? Are we against it? What What are the two sides of the coin here? So if you remember when um, I talked about it a few weeks ago, one of the things about it is the testing isn't terribly accurate, but what that can do is give the people that come in for testing some indication of what might be in the drug. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it might be an opportunity to educate the person about taking drugs and it might also be a chance to if it's a, not a great drug and they say this isn't a this is a dodgy one that that will get back to the dealer and the dealer might go out of action so this might have an economic effect is what you're saying that if you buy from person x and person x doesn't give you good stuff then you won't be going to back to person x and the market will move on to somebody else so it'll sharpen up the supply end is what you're thinking and close that one down or mm-hmm. he gets mm-hmm. a bad name interesting interesting timely discussion i mean mardi gras was this weekend um mm. i mean to my knowledge um unfortunately i didn't um join um 
the Prime Minister's bandwagon and I wasn't there in attendance in person. Um, but I'm not aware that it's a, you know, heavily um, substance-using uh, event. But I think if we're trying to sort of promote the um, health promotion um, message... Um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure if um, it's uh, going to. There's going to be an awful lot of um, buy-in in these festivals. I mean, people, you know, uh, I suppose, do what they want to do recreationally. They um, make the, they exercise their own judgment and take whatever they want to take. And most of the time at the gates, they're rather just get in ASAP rather than, you know, be educated about the harmful effects of what they're taking. That comes usually about three days after the festival. So, sure. Remember, um, I did mention about a pharmacist who was 23 who took one of the drugs and did die at the Sydney Stereosonic concert. Mm. And he's an educated person that but I think it's it's what happens is it's peer pressure. You, it's the excitement of getting in there, let's take something. But they were even saying that one of the advice on this uh, report back when I spoke a few month, uh, weeks ago was that people should bring in four tablets so that they could have one tested and still take their three. I, I think what the, well, the, the, what I've been reading about, and this is David Caldercott who's written uh, uh, widely about this and I think on the conversation uh, that uh, wonderful... Uh, journal, I guess you can get uh, online. What he's saying is that you can basically you can scrape off a bit of the whatever pill you got and give that for testing, and that does a lot of stuff. One is that it, it, you can find out what's actually in the the tablet you bought. You know, are there noxious material or is it cut toxic? Some, yeah, is it cut with something else? Is it the dose that you were expecting? Because it's very hard to titrate it if you don't know what dose you're getting in. Um, but one of the principal things I think you were touching on, Penny, is this chance to sit with somebody in the half hour it takes or how long it takes to do that testing. You can sit and chat with people and get a really um, uh, interesting dialogue happening with the kind of people that, are, that aren't usually researched. You know, usually when you do research on people who use uh, um, drugs, it's a, it's a, often it's a clinical population. And here you get a population which are highly functional, which are, are intent on using drugs drugs because they're going to a to a um to a festival with them so it's not as if you're going to um you're encouraging them more so that old argument i think about you know condoms encouraging sex this is a group of you know smart people often educated often and uh, you get a chance just to chat with them about this sort of stuff and also the other thing too is you'll have a de-identified database of all the different types of drugs there are and what's cut with them and what's not cut with them. And this kind of thing was happening, well, you know, across Europe and especially in Zurich. You know, you think of the most sort of conservative, um, uh, sort of, I guess, uh, very uh, by-the-book society, and yet uh, this, this is happening in Switzerland. They basically bring in a container, uh, put it at the front of uh, a festival. Gate. yeah. yeah. And uh, it's got all this forensic equipment. It's staffed by health professionals. It's staffed by, far, you know, pharmacists doing all the, the testing of stuff. And, you know, people are queuing up as soon as the gates open. Yeah, and they have to be cool dudes that are there. Yeah. So they all, you know, talk, talk the language, wear the clothes, yeah, 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 yeah. Have, have a few stick-on tattoos. I, I, I can't see it being anything. I mean, obviously, it's a two-edged sword. But, gee, you know, when you get seasoned professionals like, you know, emergency department doctors who have seen, you know, the damage that, that this kind of stuff can cause, calling for this, you know, why not trial it? At least trial it. See if it makes a difference. But so, and, and that's that's a good thing. But I was even talking to my daughter who went to Mac DeMarco, who's a up-and-coming musician, mm. and she said to me, Mum, you you'd be so surprised at the number of young kids, mm. 18, 19, 20, that were completely completely off the planet not with alcohol but these are kids that are you know really spaced out mm. and i have a son going to schoolies at the end of the year and she said it's right drug so when so not your rite of passage at 18 is starting alcohol and possibly sex and what have you but now these young kids go launch straight into some yeah. heavy duty stuff at yeah. schoolies and I think the recreational drug use is becoming so huge amongst, um, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds. And I think that's where the danger is because those are the people who are experimenting at experimenting with drugs for the first time and, and they don't know what they're using, how much to use and where to get it from. So I think having this testing and education could really be beneficial for, mm. you know, your first-time users right. or your recreational users. So they're quite naive to what the effects are, what to expect, where to buy it, yeah, all those sorts of things. These festivals aren't cheap. The tickets and, um, to get in are certainly um, not cheap by any um, 
stretch of the imagination. Perhaps one easy way of doing this, and um, people, will, I'm sure, will shoot me down for this, but I mean, you know, the saliva testing um, technology is relatively robust these days. I mean, there are um, handheld devices like the Cozart that will be able to give you um, a reading based on the reagent strips, which is similar to what um, the police use in roadside drug testing, and they'll give you a result within about five minutes. You know, you have everybody line up, right? And they, when they go in, they all have um, their own saliva tested. And the cost of the reagent strip is about twenty dollars. So why are you why are you, you testing build people? That into, you build that into the the price of the ticket. You know, if the, the stereotonic ticket is is hundred dollars in two thousand and seventeen, it becomes a hundred and twenty. But, and, and you, but you why are you testing on, them? Tested on the way out. No, on the way in. If it's if oh, we're trying it. to regulate it into a drug-free event, you know, to minimise <laughs> deaths and mitigate risks, yeah, I'll that will probably one. be the no. most. Yeah, I don't think no, it'll no. be drug-free. No, I don't think that's going to happen. But um, oh, look, there are lots of issues around here. And one of the things that used to happen with alcohol, still does, with young kids, is because they know at, at parties 16, 17, 18 that there are going to be security there or parents there, m- making sure there isn't alcohol or very, very, very much limiting it. They binge beforehand and then turn up really intoxicated. Mm. And that's a huge problem as well. I can see the same thing happening with drugs, that people will binge beforehand because they, they know they're going to get searched there. So massive issue I'm pointing to Dr. Shay. And also they binge before because of the price. It's always more expensive to drink at, you know, festivals or nightclubs and people get intoxicated yeah. before they even start their journey towards yeah. the event. So we have, I think I mean, it's, it's kind of an attitudinal shift, isn't it? Moving, looking at drug use, alcohol use as a health issue rather than as a criminal issue. Because, it, I mean, um, am I a pariah here thinking that, you know, prohibition just isn't working? Mm. Am I just kind of, yeah, I'm getting some nods. Doesn't work well on radio, my friends. Like, yes, Dr. Mao, you're so right. They're still not agreeing with me. I'm used to being a pro. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Dr. Shay, I can't tell you how much I've been waiting for this segment. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually wearing my... Uh, what do I call it? My Garmin thingy, my my watch, which tells me <laughs> <laughs> tells me everything about that I about my body. Which sometimes, I, you know, sometimes I'm not even going to let you talk, mate. Sometimes I, I look at my watch. I've had a couple of these Fitbit type watches, and I, I I look to my watch to see what my heart rate is before people ask me how are you. I say, hang on. <laughs> I'm 72 beats per minute. And I'm feeling doctor, pretty chilled. Don't you remember how you just look at people? What's happened to that skill? <sighs> Blue, green, look at, you look yellow, at devices. <laughs> oh dear. So tell me, how am I feeling, Doctor Shane? Oh, you feeling good? <laughs> according to <laughs> you your, look at my watch. <laughs> according to your device. So look, my my interest was really sparked um, in this wearable technology segment. Um, by actually watching TV. So I saw an advert by a private health insurance group that was offering a free wearable heart rate monitor and step counter as a free gift when you sign up for the particular plan. And having already been a big user of technology and wearable technology myself, I took a step back and I thought, when did this all start? Where are we going with this? Who's to benefit? Is it the health insurance industry? Is it the consumer? Is it the healthcare professional? And you know, there's so many advancements in this in this domain that, you know, we're a bit stuck and we don't know where to go and how to actually implement it at this point. But so, don't you think that's a good thing? Like, I, it's, it's this whole open field where we as the user get to market forces, get to say, this is what we like. Exactly. Yeah. I think we need to drive the technology changes yeah. and we need to be the pioneers of how yeah. we're going to implement this in our, in our own well-being and healthcare. And, you know, there are already thousands of devices on the market and, you know, experts are predicting that it's going to become essential in our everyday lives. And, you know, it's fair to think that, you know, in the future we're all going to be wearing these. But, you know, I I tend to disagree with this a bit. And I think wearable technology is already essential in our everyday life. I mean, I just look around this room. There's two people wearing either a, you know, step count or a heart rate monitor. But more importantly, they're three of us or three three people wearing glasses and you know that that it's is wearable, wearable technology, technology, wearable yeah. technology. Yeah, 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 so yeah. you know if if you actually look back as as to where it all started and it actually started probably about 700 years ago and and they say the first reported um use of wearable technology was emperor nero who used to wear glasses to see his gladiators better in battle so 
Imagine if he was living with us now and he had Google Glass or Oculus Rift. Oculus Rift, and he could simulate his own battlefield or be able to tell the pulse rate of each soldier or each gladiator on the field. I thought they had those um, bronze binoculars that they would pull out and you know, and then give the gladiators the thumbs up or thumbs down. No, not quite no, like that. You actually wore glasses. Very, it's very um, aristocratic. You're, you're thinking of the opera. All oh, right. No, I'm, actually, I'm just thinking about a film starring Russell Crowe sometime back. So you're telling me I can justify to my family the purchase of an Apple Watch because, hey, I wear glasses. It's a short hop, step and jump to an Apple Watch. It's wearable wearable technology. It's wearable and you can justify it because you're saying you're improving your health and well-being. I I think that's fair enough. And then every every now and then when you want to send a little beating heart to your partner, she'll know exactly what your heart rate is (laughs) and she'll know exactly that you're doing well. Especially when I'm at the gym and it's going 180. So, so, so I was just thinking then, maybe because there's these sudden, sudden unexpected deaths. So there was a cyclist that died on the Great Ocean Road during last, during this week, and he had a heart attack. And possibly that might be one thing that could be alert somebody that the heart rate was going completely Almost bonkers. Like a personal black box. Exactly. Can I tell you, I've got a mate who um, was wearing one of these thingies and um, it was going up to, I don't know, 200 as he was riding or something. And he's a really fit bloke. And he said, nah, nah, it's stuffed. And he did it two or three times, nah, nah, it's stuffed. And then he took his pulse and it was 200. He went to see a GP, then a cardiologist. He had one of these arrhythmias that he subsequently had treated. And it's because his little duvawacky picked it up. Picked it up. Yeah. Exactly that. I think that's where technology is going to take us. We're going to be able to self-monitor our own health and be able to set alerts on our, you know, wearable technologies. Our doctors are going to help us set alerts to know that, you know, when your heart rate gets to above 120, 130, Mm -hmm. you know, you you seek GP practice or you seek seek medical attention. Even better, it calls the doctor for you and books an appointment. And books an appointment. (laughs) And reminds you. But I think then then we could run into the problem of who becomes liable for that, though, if your doctor's setting these alerts and so forth, oh. then, you know, is, is it his responsibility when, you know, we get to the stage where he can actually or monitor her. it remotely, yeah. him or yeah, her, yeah, yeah. Um, where they're monitoring your heart rate remotely? Is it their responsibility to activate the referral? Is it their responsibility? Oh, yeah. Because, you know, essentially you're putting this on the wrist of someone who isn't medically trained or isn't a, a, a clinician. So is it their responsibility to take you know, care of themselves? Also, it's, it speaks to the accuracy of a lot of these devices as well because they're not always entirely accurate depending on uh, the conditions you use them in. So, yeah, the issue of liability, that's an interesting so, one. Mm. So on our registry, mm. we, ha- we make it, we say in our information sheet that it's the patient's responsibility to take care of, you know, take responsibility for their own health. So maybe when you start on, sign up and wear mm. one, mm. You might be aware that there might be some alerts, but ultimately you're wearing it, you're monitoring yourself. You might have to take responsibility. Mm. Disclaimer. Disclaimer, yeah. I, I, I think it can be used, and, and, and coming back to the point of, you know, accuracy and validity, and I think as, as technology is advancing, we, we're getting more accurate readings and we're getting, you know, more valid data from it. And, you know, my, my big issue with this is, is the privacy around this. Um, if a health insurer is asking you to wear this watch to improve uh-huh. your health, what are they actually doing with the data? So now, now they're mining, you know, thousands of heart rates per minute kind of thing, and, and they've got all this data. What are they actually using it for? And are we going to get to this point where it's like a car insurance policy? They monitor the way you drive and your premiums go up and down depending on how well you drive, you know, are your premiums going to go up and down depending on how far you walk, how many steps you take and how active you've been. How active you've I've been. S- I know in your uh, original uh, home country, there was a, if people can detect your accent, there uh, was a health insurance scheme where every time you went to gym or if you went to gym a certain number of times or did a certain number of healthy activities, you actually got a premium discount. And you're saying, well, let's take this one step further. If you if you lead a healthy lifestyle, as shown by your wearable device, your health insurance says less. But if you don't, it actually bumps it up. Interesting. Exactly. Interesting yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we, we're trying to promote well-being and, and good health. And I think that, you know, there's benefit, obviously, for both the doctor or the clinician, you know, the consumer being, you know, a patient and, and also the health insurance. I mean... As a consumer, if you think about a doctor's consult, they just have the screenshot of, of what you are at that moment yeah. in time. Yeah. Imagine having a month's worth of your blood sugar levels or your heart rate and 
you know, being able to interpret all of that data instead of just saying, I can examine you now, I've got your heart rate now, I've got, you know, 100 readings over the last month, and I can make much more accurate and, you know, educated decisions about how I'm going to treat you. You're reminding me of a second-year medicine lecture we had during sex week. We used to have this week where everything was about sex, the biology, physiology, chemistry, and one they showed this uh, one uh, male had worn a blood pressure cuff for 24 hours and it showed all these, like, little things, and he went to traffic here and the blood pressure went up and... Um, you know, uh, he had dinner and afterwards his blood pressure went down. And just before he went to sleep, his blood pressure went up really, really high and then went down. And uh, so, you know, we were laughing. Oh, that's, when he had, that's when he had sex, but it only lasts about three minutes. So, so we, were, we were wondering who he was. Um, with that sort of data, though, with that sort of data, that uh, really uh, speaks to the idea of the white coat phenomenon. You know, so the idea with the white coat phenomenon is you go in to see your doctor, he or she takes your blood pressure, your pulse, and a few other measurements, I guess, and they can be affected just through the stress of, of having it measured by a professional. And you can kind of do away with that or mitigate that somewhat by wearing these um, devices. I like that idea. Yeah, exactly that. A lot of people are anxious about going into their doctor to seek whether it's, you know, you know medical advice mm. or just advice mm. in general. So I think by mitigating that... Um, white coat phenomenon we, we're going to you know improve the health of i'm going to take my device in next time i go see my jp so this is all very well but remember when internet came out and um, our mobile phones and text messages and people became really incredibly anxious about wanting to answer things quickly and you know, read your phone quickly and you couldn't live without walking in the front door and checking all your messages and and uh, it just adds another level of anxiety for people some people and certainly for me because I don't, I, don't, I just want to get on with life I don't want to have to know what you know check my monitor reading every five minutes to see what my pulse rate is i mean i can t- i can tell when my pulse rate goes up but for some people i just think they might start getting a bit anxious about all of this it's a very good point i mean you know with these unwearable devices i think we also have to keep in mind they're not the be all and end all either um you know some people will pay attention to the minutiae of what's being recorded but a lot of the time, you know, it is still there to provide some supplementary information. Um, you know, keeping in mind, for instance, for instance, you can't wear these devices into a lot of physical activity arenas. For instance, you can't wear it while swimming. Um, you can't wear it while surfing because it'll break in an instant. Um, you can't wear it in... Um, um, I'm, I'm mindful there is a UFC, UFC fight today, so you can't <laughs> wear it in um, cage fighting either. Um, and... You know, a lot of it's really just for counting steps. Uh, I, I think, you know, as technology grows, I think we will be able to wear it while we're surfing. Maybe not, you know, cage fighting, but, you know, while we're in the water and stuff. And I think, you know, there are already devices, you know, the more high-end ones that can measure your, you know, the laps you do in a pool and your heart rate while you're doing it and your, you know, on your bicycle. I didn't think there were any devices that were waterproof. Uh, yeah, no, there's a, there, there are some now that are... I mean, yes, there are, there are waterproof Stand devices. Corrected. There are a couple of them, yeah. I think there was an IP6 waterproof, what are they called? Yeah. But so what I'm... Yeah, but maybe just getting back to, you know, Penny's point. I mean, um, a lot of people would just go for it. They'll just exercise. They feel like they're about to um, vomit. Their heart is racing that fast. They don't need a device to tell them that they're working hard. They know they're working but hard. But if you take it out of the exercise arena, like often I will look at, and maybe I am... Uh, the outlier i'll look at my baseline pulse and say wow my baseline um, pulse my resting pulse has gone up two beats i must be stressed and the thing that got me about this was i I, I, for two days before i got sick a couple of months ago my baseline pulse went up about three or four beats and i was just thinking gee it's gone up i wonder why it's gone up am i stressed i'm not stressed but then two days later i got sick so now whenever my baseline pulse goes up i think hang on i could be getting a bit of a virus Okay, Dr. Mao, you're on. We're wearing the same oh. device, the same model. What's your resting heart rate now? Uh, I'm oh, sitting oh. on 63. <laughs> it's gone up to 66. You're 63. Oh, it's not only 60. <laughs> I'm heading for a, a big infection. I rest my case. White coat syndrome. Yeah. Now I'm feeling... Yeah, well, now it's the wrist syndrome. I am getting stressed by my <laughs> pulse going up. It's stressing me more. Penny, 
point proven. Yeah, your there point, you go. Your point proven. We're all getting nutty in what, what about that? Uh, what about the device that tells you how you're feeling? I love that. I want. A, a, I've heard of this. Uh, like it tells you if you're feeling stressed, if you're feeling calm, if you're feeling sad. Where do I get one of those? The mood ring. The mood ring. That's <laughs> been around for. That's been around forever. I no. remember getting it in a lucky packet as a kid. And how much was that? Like ten cents. Ten cents. Yeah. No, but aren't there? there, there I've heard, and maybe I, I'm talking at it out. I don't really know what I'm talking about, but there is a device that measures skin galvanic response. And skin galvanic response is how well your skin conducts electricity. It's kind of what they use for lie detector tests because it measures your sympathetic tone, how stressed you are, how much adrenaline's flowing around. I thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Shea, that there is a device that's on the oh, market. It's, it's not really. It's on the market, but it's it's so far and few between and it's so expensive. I don't think it's commercially available yet. I, I've never come across one. I, I've read about it, but... I want one. And, yeah, I also want one. Um, I'll get you a mood ring. <laughs> from yeah. a lucky, can I open the lucky packet, though? <laughs> It would be even better if you had a lie detector that you could wear on your... You could put on your kids' wrists. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you spend the money on jelly beans? Well, for us on our patients' wrists. Uh, on everybody's wrists. <sighs> yep, that's it. We're all going to have these things. No, even we were talking about following up patients, and I, somebody said, why don't we microchip patients? So we could have all of these things just mm. under our skin. We'd just be these little walking computers. <sighs> yeah, what do we have to look forward to? Tell us, because she's, she's bringing down a lot of rain on my parade oh. over here on the left. Well, you know, I've had a look at the few, um, well, a few of the biotech firms and, and yeah. what they're actually doing. And, um, you know, Google's trying to create a contact lens that can measure your blood sugar level from oh. a teardrop. So imagine every diabetic patient who has this and we have live data of what their blood sugar levels are doing and, and they have access to their own blood sugar levels to treat them more accurately. Um, That's from, awesome. From oh, because you can you can measure the serous fluid around the eyeball. Yep. Wow. So one one of the other bits that we, have, that we haven't mentioned is how useful it is in research. So if there was a research project looking at blood pressures and treatment with drugs, these, these are very, very useful tools for monitoring people. Exactly. Just as I said earlier, think about the amount of data we can get from having, you know, the majority of the population wearing, you know, wearable devices and having access to this information. But then it goes back to, you know, the privacy privacy but like you know do we want all our information published and do we want all our information available to third parties do you think this is a broader discussion I, I, i'm getting the sense i mean we as health professionals are obviously incredibly sensitive to the idea of privacy and confidentiality in how information is held and who has access to it because that's part of our job yeah i'm getting the sense that, this is anecdotal that um the two gener well, generations now coming into this who have been born with this technology, who kind of look at a camera and expect a screen to be at the back, you know, that kind of generation that doesn't understand that it was filmed, like my kids. The idea of privacy, it's not as as um, kind of rigidly held as, as, as we think about it. They say, yeah, so they get my height and they get my weight and they get my pulse. Yeah, okay, kind of thing. Yeah. Am I, again, am I a pariah or what's your experience with people of that generation? True, kids yeah. just relaxed about, uh, relaxed about all of that sort of thing from my experience with the mm. kids. I, I tend to agree with you, but I still do think that um, if it's going to influence the amount you're spending on your healthcare insurance or your, your private insurance, then I think people will care where their data is no, going. That's true too. That's true, too. But if it's going to be anonymised, like if it goes back to, like, you know how it says on your phone, you know, do you consent to anonymised uh, data going back to help improve um, the software design or the hardware design? I don't have a pro Do you have a problem with that? Uh, not at all. I think the big picture is that w with all this data, we can analyse it and, and create better health outcomes yeah. for, and you know, better research with all this data. We, we've never ha had the ability to collect you know, a million heart rates, you know, without even seeing the patient or without even seeing the, the the person in the study, so... I do think it can go too far. Like Penny says, I was sitting with a group of friends, some of who do the show, and there we were just after breakfast. We were all inputting what we ate into our phones, <laughs> looking at our watches, figuring out what we have to do. Yeah, it can go too excessive. 
Dr. Shea, fantastic stuff. I mean, there's lots and lots of what we can talk about. We'll get you back on the show. You can be our specialty technology reporter. How about that? Nice. Can you bring in some devices for me to test? Free ones for us to try. Free ones. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Hey, um, Hepsi, big news. Hepsi, Hepsi indeed. So this is fairly amazing, I have to say. So as of the 1st of March, just a few days ago, the Turnbull government has invested over $1 billion, Australian dollars, taxpayers' dollars, to cure Hep C. So I'm just going to give a bit of a background about hepatitis C. So even writing in... $1 billion? $1 billion. It's huge. It's huge. huge. It is phenomenal. I didn't realise it was that much. Yeah. And so just riding in on my bike to here, to the show this this morning, um, one of the riders said, oh, gosh, I've I've got a couple of friends with hep C. One's died and two others have been really unwell with it. And they're in their 50s. So they were naughty in their 20s. Well, they don't necessarily be naughty. I mean, you can get it from lots of different things. Well, they... Oh, these people. These people. These were naughty with uh, some syringes and needles and sharing and pre-big-time education. It's funny you should talk about that because I was speaking to a mate who's a GP uh, yesterday. I was saying we're going to be talking about this. And he he had an experience with a patient who um, had abnormal liver function tests and he put it down to a whole lot of other reasons. And turned out that it was um this patient had gotten it from a blood transfusion like 20 years ago just from one transfusion yep and had been living with this for 20 years and completely unsuspected because she didn't fall into a high risk group as we currently define them yep so even that's a little part of my little chat today is that in february 1990 um that's when the blood bank stopped um, hep C going into blood so they had a better test so they test for the antibodies in the blood and everybody screened for hep C antibodies and as of um, February 1990 they were fairly positive that well that no hep C was being found in bloods so when you're having your transfusions yeah. it was eradicated so there was no chance of getting it via a blood transfusion but that was a way of getting it in the early yeah. sort of late eight, 1980s so what do people die from i mean you're talking about these these friends of yours what do they okay so i'll start from the top okay, here. From the top. <laughs> to push you along sorry yeah so hep C is a it's a, a virus and there's quite a few uh, viral infections that cause hepatitis and there's a b c d and e and but today we're going to touch on c so in the old days when rob and i were in the gastro unit at a big hospital um we used to call it, it was called non-a non-b because they didn't have a that's name for right. it that's right it was non-a non-b so then Gee, it got c piece. because we're working down the alphabet okay. let's hope we don't get to z and um so it's a virus that is found in people's blood and it's got into people's blood through other people's infected blood so and then it gives them an inflamed liver and as um mal said that it's detected usually in a blood test so because this is a funny old disease some people are asymptomatic so they don't they're just healthy people that have gone in for a blood test and somebody's just done some liver function tests and gone hello something unusual here and then they might go on to test for some of the other reasons for elevated um of elevated blood liver function tests do you know, you know, when people say hepatitis, I, it took me years to understand, I think I was even a doctor, that hepatitis, itis just means inflammation, and you can't say liver-itis because that doesn't sound technical enough. You have to say hepatitis. So it goes back li- to the Greeks. That's it, but Hepa. it's liver, liver-itis. Liver-itis. Inflamed, yeah, inflamed liver. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So just a few little tidbits. Uh, the people with HIV are more susceptible. Women are more susceptible. To, and, to, to hep C? Yep. Yep. And so what happens with people that do get this disease, 20% of people with hep C go on to get cirrhosis. So that's sort of liver damage that doesn't regenerate. Mm. And then the others can go, so that group that get the um, cirrhosis can then go on to liver cancer. It's a slow progressive disease. Decades type of thing. Decades. And then the liver cancer can go into liver failure. And then um, people might need a liver transplant. Yeah. And they have transplanted yeah. people with hep C. Yeah. And they think that that's an eligible criteria because mm. they could then, if their hep C is ongoing, then they'll 
it'll take a long time for their new liver to get the hep C yeah. and be, get damaged. But now you can be treated for it. But now yeah. we can oh. get be treated. But I just thought also we might need to talk about what are the symptoms. So listeners might be thinking, mm. have I got hep C? Yeah. Well, let's think about the symptoms. So some people have no symptoms. Mm. And as I said, it might be picked up on a blood dis- test. But others might have some fever, flu-like symptoms, an itch tiredness, malaise, loss of appetite. And then when the liver disease is sort of not... It's progressed from just being inflamed, it's got some damage. Then we might have symptoms like dark urine, jaundice, nausea, vomiting, GI GI sort of problems, tenderness in your tummy. And then Mm -hmm. sometimes people do progress into depression. Mm -hmm. So because they've just been chronically, feeling chronically Mm -hmm. unwell. So what happens is... In um, when you first get exposed to the Hep C virus, so Hepatitis C, um, you everybody goes through this acute phase where you get the infection and then you go like hell for leather to try and clear it. And um, quite a few people can clear it, but it's a small percent. And then those that so twenty five percent of people that do get it can clear it, and then those seventy five percent go on to have a chronic hepatitis. Mm-hmm like illness Mm -hmm. and they don't do very well and so just to get some australian figures we've they've estimated that there are two hundred and thirty thousand australians with hepatitis c a quarter of a million people that is and that breaks down to one in a hundred people with hep c wow and for those people that go on to chronic disease, you, yeah. you know, the burden of disease is what we talk about mm. in epidemiology. It's it's the cost, it's the not only to the health dollars but to the families, to the people um, with the hep C because they can't work, they, you know, they're really unwell. Mm. And it's, it's extremely expensive. Mm. And then um, there have 700 deaths per year that are attributed to hep C. Mm. So mm. that might be, they might have other things as well. But, mm-hmm. And this is um, a really significant thing. Yeah. So, and the treatment in the past, when we were young hepatologists, um, Dr. Mal and I, um, was terrible. So there wasn't much and there was a drug called interferon, which you had to inject three times a day. Depression was a very common side effect. And it wasn't really great and people weren't coming in for it so the hepatitis has just sat around and enjoyed itself and mm-hmm. spread across mm-hmm. society mm-hmm. so what they've decided and what's happened is that the research has just gone absolutely mm-hmm. brilliant got gun busters and they've got some new oral tablets so this is what the government's invested because it's um it's a short course it's eight to twelve weeks it's um it's um, if you um, are working, you pay uh, the PBS cost or a pension cost. So let's talk about the two different costs. So if you're working and can afford the PBS cost of a dispensing of a drug, that's $38. If you're on a pension and unemployed, that's $6. So that's what we all pay um, in hospitals or and for some drugs, but only covered on the PBS. So that's mm-hmm. a government-subsidised mm-hmm. drug. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's a low fee, but wait for it mm-hmm. the cost of this treatment is between 90 and a hundred thousand dollars per person so the government's footing that the bill. government's wow. footing that bill because it's such an important thing to eradicate and try and get to the bottom of and try and treat and you know stop the spread of this terrible virus yeah. and um i think it's an a, you know, earth-shattering investment that the government's got into. I, I've just been looking at this. Again, I, I prepared for this segment. Thank you. <laughs> I try. You need to. You need some sort of. Uh, like I speak medical ease pretty easily, but I, how do you even pronounce the names of these of these drugs? Dil. Goodness gracious, they are hard to pronounce. Who in their right mind gives names to these drugs? Seriously, Lidipasavir. Oh, here we go. I'm getting better. Sofosavir. Sofosavir. Ribavirin. So they're new antiviral medications by the sound of things. Yes. Yeah, and it sounds like the success rate is pretty good, uh, Penny. Yeah, it's fantastic. I can't believe it. I just in, but this is twenty years since. Yeah, since we did 20, it. Since we did it. Yeah. I've got a quote here. That sounds 90, really weird. Ninety percent success rate here. It says ninety uh, a cure rate of greater than ninety percent and short in duration and well tolerated. 
Gee, how far things have come in 20 years. And what, what, so hence, who wouldn't invest in something like this? Yeah, yeah. And so, but we, and it's in Australia, and now I think if there's a good success rate, it will go overseas. Mm. Um, so I just also wanted to say that um, people um, who can take these drugs mm. can still be injecting. They can be in prison. So it's really getting absolutely every, everybody. Oh, so it's not a contraindication. No, nope, no, nope, okay. because, you know, we want people that are still using because they're still passing it on and anybody that's got hep C, we've got to eradicate it and get their treatment. Um, and so there is a new study that um, Margaret Hillard, who's been on this program, so she's through the Burnett, it's called the TAP study, so that's treatment and prevention. And I must, must give a plug about this because I think it's a great initiative. So they're also looking at, um, there's three arms to the study, but one of them is where you get treatment and you bring a friend. Mm-hmm. So they get $40 for participating. So if you've just used drugs around the corner and you've had your, your first dose of the tablets, then you can whiz over, get your mate who's a bit spaced out, but they'll bring them in, get them to have some treatment. So in the past, people weren't coming in for treatment. They were hiding in their homes, having a fun time. Well, who what knows about, if it's fun. That? But um, I think so that's on the um, What's that the called, Burnett, the, TAP study? the TAP study, treatment and prevention study. So people HCD. want to get involved in that. What do they do? Though? They go to the um, Burnett website and look at, and it's up there. It's got Margaret Hillard's name on it. So but even if they Googled the TAP study. The T-A-P-S. No, just T-A-P. T-A-P and Burnett, B-U-R-N-E-T-T. One T. Oh, really? One T. One T. Okay, so TAP Burnett study. So I think it's I think it's really yeah, amazing. That is really quite astounding. I mean, I don't know any other country that's done this. No, I did have a look to see. No, it's I don't think astounding. they have d- gone well. for a whole nation. Yeah. But I also just wanted to say because some people get a bit excited about Hep C, and I can remember looking after people with Hep C yeah, and Hep B, like and yeah. and being careful, you know, not to touch them. And then I mm. thought, hang on, let's look at the research on this. Mm. So. Really, you must understand that people with hep C, mm. I'm only going to focus on hep C, you can't get it with ordinary contact. So touching, kissing, sharing plates and cutlery, toilets, washing machines, that's not a way it's spread. It really has to be an injection and it has, or, you know, with dirty needles, has to be injected into you. And some, some dodgy places where tattooists, but not in Australia, they have very strict tattoo guidelines, but that might be another source. Can I also, yeah, put it, put people onto the Hepatitis Australia website? That is yep. a, a brilliant website. If you want information about hepatitis C, you get it from the absolute experts. And uh, this is an advocacy group, obviously, for hepatitis uh, and hepatitis C. Uh, was what we're talking about this morning. Hepatitis Australia, head to that site for some really spot-on information, especially about the latest treatments as well. Australia, all in one word, dot com. Terrific stuff. Thank you so much. EpiPen, coming up in one minute's time, we'll be speaking with... Dr. Mutu about childhood allergies. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. That's Radiotherapy. You're joining Dr. Mal, EpiPen, Dr. Shea, and Dr. Mutu, who's going to tell us about childhood allergies. Yes, thank you, Mel. Um, last year, during one of um, one of our segments, um, we had a um, immunologist in, and um, we were talking about um, the um, hygiene hypothesis, and we were talking about why childhood allergy rates are so high in this country, and oh, particularly in this up, demographic. Up. The hygiene hypothesis. You just mentioned a, a theory there. Yes. Tell me, I can't. I don't. What, what hygiene hypothesis? I'm too clean. I'm too dirty. Well, it's the supposition that um, children nowadays have more and more allergies than, say, 50, 500 years ago. I mean, yeah. not that records were being kept 500 years ago. We didn't have um, Fitbits or Garmin's back then. Um, but over the last 50 to 100 years, there's been a steady increase in the rates of um, childhood allergies. Um, in Melbourne alone, I mean, we're talking about um, rates of about a threefold increase in hospital admissions for anaphylaxis in the last 13 years. Wow. EpiPen. Right? There you go. So I'm, I'm hoping that epidemiologists will back me up in that statement. Um, and in children between the ages of 5 to 14, there has been a seven-fold increase in that same period of time. So rates of allergies are skyrocketing, um, and you know people are picking their brains about why that might be. 
Um, and one of the hypotheses is um, what's called the um, hygiene um, hypothesis in that um, basically our environment, what we eat, what the children come in contact with day to day, it's a little bit too sanitized and um, their immune systems are not exposed to um, pathogens, so i.e. bacteria, viruses, um, and allergens that normally would um, force them to develop a um, systemic immune response. So I've been sort of following this topic just on and off since our last segment. And there's been a couple of um, very um, interesting and breakthrough um, studies that have uh, just been published um, recently that further talks to this. So I thought I'd use the time remaining to update the listeners about um, uh, childhood allergies, um, particularly focusing a little bit more on um, our demographic and in Melbourne. But going um, abroad just uh, to start with, um, there was a study um, published in the um, New England Journal of Medicine called the EAT study. EAT standing for Inquiring About Tolerance. It's a very good um, three-letter acronym right there. Um, Where they um, surveyed 1,300 three-month-old children from England and Wales and um, both um, into two groups. Um, Both groups um, of children are, are breastfed and um, they're exposed to, in one cohort, allergenic foods at three months, and then also the other group, um, allergenic foods at six months. And allergenic meaning? So allergenic foods that they um, exposed the kids to were, um, there were six of them. There were eggs, milk, wheat, peanuts, Mm -hmm. um, fish, Mm -hmm. which um, Mm -hmm. constitutes seafood, and sesame seeds. Mm -hmm. So um, they exposed... um, children at three and six months and they tracked them for three years and the result was that if you expose the kids to these allergens early i.e at three months there is actually a significant um reduction in relative risk of subsequently developing these allergies at three um at three years follow-up whoa back up there that's a that's that's pretty startling news this is new england journal of medicine which is would that be the highest rated medical journal? It's I think up there. It, it, it's yeah. right up there. And it's yeah. in the top five. Yeah, mm. so it is an august journal. It's incredibly rigorous with the studies it produces. I didn't. I haven't heard of this study before. The EAT study showed that if you if they exposed children to these things, uh, then they were less likely to develop. When were they less likely to develop the um, the uh, allergies? Like when did they test them again? They followed the children up for three years. For three years, right. And during that time, if there are any allergic responses, right. um, then it'll be picked up and recorded right. during the course of the study. So, and can I just add that when you breastfeed children, you don't usually introduce these things till about six months. Oh, that's true too. So yeah. this, that's right. this I, I was, I sat there and think, thought, oh, the ethics of this, and did they, how did they go with approvals? But I think it would obviously be incredibly important to look at this and, um, And what's interesting about this study is that um, they were um, studying the general population. They didn't pick a subpopulation, particularly um, allergen-prone children or um, children with um, a family history of allergies or urticaria, eczema, asthma, etc. I know these are very um, hard to pick up when when a baby is three months old, but they really just looked at the general population. So if a sibling had 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 some anaphylactic... That's right. They were still included? They were still included. And randomised too? Wow. That's correct. So one group got the the allergens at six months and the others at at three. Yeah. Wow. The authors were um, um, teams operating out of um, uh, St George's uh, University, London, King's College. It was funded by the NHS. It's a big study. Wow. And they were so confident with their study results that um, they even made um, quite um, firm dosing recommendations. You're trying, this never happens. Yeah, so they were <laughs> yeah, suggesting that you know, babies as young as three months old, um, they can be given um, two grams of peanut butter and two grams of egg white each week, and that will help the babies reduce the risk of developing an allergy. So these are the authors recommending this in an EDGEM study? Yeah. Wow. Two grams. So, so this is, as it being, in, um, has policy changed? Yeah. As Not as yet. This is hot off the press. Wow, wow. And in terms of precautions, what have they recommended for precautions when you're giving the two grams of peanut butter or sesame seeds? Do you want a doctor's office or...? 
Well, I suppose、um, parents will need to take due diligence. I mean, you don't want to, if there is a significant family history, and you know、um, the baby's already having a bit of an off day, you probably want to do it slowly. You don't want to just sort of, you know, feed them a tablespoon's worth of peanut butter. Well, you couldn't anyway, because couldn't they anyway. couldn't.、Um, <laughs> I mean, it'd have、yeah. to be. I'm not making any recommendations here, but the way that it's mushed up and everything. So, hang on. If people want to, we don't recommend people do this, but if they want to look at their study, the study is in the New England Journal of Medicine. When was, was it? In February. February this year, and it was called the EAT study. If you want to have a look at it, yeah.、Wow. Bringing things back closer to home. I mean, that was an English study. But、um, there was another very interesting study that I came across.、Um, it was、um, the team was、uh, from the University of Melbourne and the Murdoch Children's Institute, and they were looking at、um, basically the hygiene、mm-hmm. hypothesis、mm-hmm. of、um, developing a peanut allergy. So、um, they investigated. Well, well, I suppose they compared、um, Australian children. They compared.、Um, Asian children、mm-hmm. who were born in Australia,、mm-hmm. and then they、um, looked at Asian children born in Asia and then migrated、mm-hmm. to Australia.、Mm-hmm. But the number size and, and, and the power of the study is quite significant: fifty-seven、yeah. thousand children、um, who were starting、wow. school. <laughs> Who were starting school in 2010,、yeah. and it's the first populational study of this kind because these sort of naturalistic studies are very difficult to yeah, conduct. Yeah, and yeah. you know,、um, the, a credit to credit to the researchers, they just picked. Okay, we're going to take the start line of the school year, and you know, survey all the patient,、uh, all, all the parents. So what they found was there were 57,000 respondents.、Mm-hmm. Okay.、Um, They found that there was about a five percent rate of、um, allergy. So about three thousand、mm-hmm. parents reported that their children、yeah. were、um, allergic to something. Now,、um, if you were、uh, an Asian-born child、mm-hmm. and then you migrated to Australia,、mm-hmm. you're more likely to develop an allergy if you're an Asian-born.、Um, hang on, let me get this right. <laughs> this is starting to get confusing.、Um, if you're an Asian person who were born in Australia, you had a higher risk of having an allergy than if you were an Asian person born in Asia and then migrated、ah, to Australia. Gotcha, so、yeah. the study quite significantly, basically substantiates the fact that being exposed to allergens and、um, different environmental cues reduced the the chances of developing just this peanut allergy. I like this hygiene hypothesis, and in fact, I think we even talked about it a couple of years ago with gut flora, basically the、yes. bio no, what do we call yeah, it? Yeah, that was last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and looking, at, there were some big epidemiological studies in Finland versus some other country, and looking at basically what's in people's guts and whether they have more allergies or less allergies depending on those little bacteria munching away on your colon and so forth.、Um, uh, you know, we were, some, some mates and I were talking about. Where is medicine heading? And I reckon this is the area where we're going in terms of you know the bacteria that are the commensals that live inside us basically、um, dictate dictate、uh, play a big role in、uh, the development of certain disorders, especially、uh, disorders of modern lifestyle. I'm sorry. My friend, Doctor Mo, I've got to cut you off there. There's so much to talk about, but we've got the scientists from Monsanto. They're champing at the bit over in the other studio. We're going to come back to this because it's such an important topic. Thank you for being with us on on Monsanto、um, on、uh, Radio Therapy. We'll catch up with you next Sunday morning. Until then, have a listen to the scientists from Monsanto. Cheers. Well, you are quite simply the nicest person in the world, aren't you? So why haven't you subscribed, you miserable bastard? You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events, and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.